You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Episode 169, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is Dr. Blake Miller. He's an orthopedic trauma surgeon here in Grand Rapids area. And I was present at a talk he gave very briefly where he talked about how he was incorporating functional medicine into his orthopedic trauma practice, which seemed very strange. Generally, an orthopedic trauma surgeon, they see a fracture, they fix it. There's obviously high energy collisions and things that happen. And they just take care of stuff by putting in plates and screws and rods, but he takes a different approach. He still does that, obviously, but when people have problems afterwards or they come with him with other problems, he also has an elective practice that he's starting. And so he's looking at maybe the whole patient a little bit more and other things that might be going on. Maybe the joint pain you're having or the post-trauma pain you're having is not a result of the trauma itself. Maybe there's something else going on. And so he goes into the extra time he's had because of a recent job change but it's allowed him the opportunity to reflect and to take a different approach to orthopedics. And I think you'll find this discussion very interesting and a different way of looking at someone who's a surgeon who you think only operates on one track, but he's willing to move off the track a little bit and sort of reflect again on what else might be going on. Perhaps even most importantly, the audio is perfect with the show as opposed to the last show where it was just all walk in. I apologize again for that. As always, you can go to theparadox.com slash 169. There you can get the show notes with links to previous episodes we've talked about functional medicine and also the links to other sponsors to the show. And now that we've gotten out of the really busy season for end of the school year, we'll start having a little bit more episodes, probably shoot for every other week, where we'll continue to explore the medical system. People are disruptive. People do innovative things. But without further ado, Dr. Blake Miller in Trading a Hammer for History. Enjoy. Well, welcome. I'm here with my good friend, Dr. Blake Miller, and we're going to have a delightful conversation. 
Dr. Miller is an orthopedic trauma surgeon. He's specializing in post-traumatic hip and pelvis reconstruction, and as well as primary and revision total joint arthroplasty, which are joint replacements. He was born and raised in Oregon, received his undergraduate degree from Oregon State. He then moved way east and attended medical school at Des Moines University, where actually my father went to medical school in Iowa. I did residency at St. John Macomb Oakland Center in Detroit, completed his orthopedic trauma fellowship at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and lives in Grand Rapids with his wife, Amanda, his two children, Sam and Anna. And we're going to talk about mm, orthopedics and then kind of beyond orthopedics. So, Blake, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, uh, it's a really interesting story, and we had a meeting, which I'm probably talk about later when we sort of for the doctors saving doctors, but right now I think we don't really know where that's going or what it's going to be. So I think once we get that a little more fleshed out, we'll talk about that on the show. But uh, I thought you had a great discussion, and why don't you give us a little recap of sort of how you got to where you are now? Um, and let's just let's just take it through while your employment at the large uh, health system where we worked. So I always put the disclaimer. Nothing here we're going to discuss today is specific to, uh, it's obviously specific to a, a hospital system, but it's not really important in the sense that I think a lot of your, your story is very similar. It's not atypical for what happens to people in healthcare systems. And so part of the, part of the story is that it's probably the less interesting part of the story. And what I think what happens beyond that's a little more interesting, but let's just give a little bit of the backdrop of kind of how you got to. I guess to Grand Rapids and to start working for things. And then we'll talk about what happened and then we'll go on from there. Sure. Yeah. So um, obviously I grew up in, in Oregon and then went to medical school in Des Moines, went, you know, residency in, in Detroit. So that's where I met uh, my now wife. We were dating at the time, got married right before I went to fellowship, went uh, East to Newark um, to do my fellowship. And then I actually started my practice back in Detroit for a year with uh, one of my, the, my former residents that I, I worked with, he was kind of a mentor going through. And, and so we started practice together and then he ended up leaving Detroit. And then I didn't really have anywhere to go. I was driving to three different hospitals each an hour apart. And so I was busy, but I was busy driving, not working. And so <laughs> an opportunity came um, to come to the big hospital in, in Grand Rapids. And, and one of my uh, one of my classmates from Des Moines University was, was working here and he kind of recruited me over. So uh, I came over with um, in 2015, yeah, 2015, and really kind of fell into my dream job uh, right out of fellowship. I was at, at a level one trauma center doing high energy, high volume trauma, um, and that's ultimately what I wanted to do. And so I ran a very busy practice, and we were uh, we were growing, thriving. We had five orthopedic trauma surgeons. Um, got to meet really good people. We we, had, we worked with really good people. Um, and then, you know, as things kind of developed, it was one of those things where the, the big hospital systems, they, they have, they haven't, they want to go in a direction and want, they want their, their, a lot of their doctors to go in that similar direction. And so we, we disagreed on a contract and, and that, therefore I kind of transitioned out of the, the level one trauma center. It was not, really what I wanted to do at the time, but I felt it was the right thing for me to do at the time. And then I, I um, joined a private practice and work at a different hospital now. Um, and I, and I went out of really orthopedic trauma, high volume orthopedic trauma. And now I've kind of morphed into a kind of 50% orthopedic trauma, 50% uh, joint replacement practice, which has um, changed my paradigm a lot about how orthopedic patients have been treated or, or are being treated. 
Um, and it's made me look at things a little bit differently uh, because I didn't have that perspective before. Sure. And I think it's probably important to point out here to most people, if, if you were an orthopedic trauma surgeon, uh, it, there are definitely private practice opportunities, but you are generally going to be, if you're in a busy trauma service, you're going to be in a large healthcare system. I mean, that's just the, whether it's an academic system or a private or, you know, nonprofit large system, it's still going to be a large hospital you're, if you're going to be busy and have a practice like you want, where you're seeing the large long bone fractures and all the, and you know, pelvic fractures and yeah. those sorts of things. Right. So, uh, you can't not, I guess, deal with those large systems, right? I mean that you're going to be, you're going to have to negotiate. You're going to have to try and find some way to, to work within those systems. And so I guess let's back up a little bit to the, what happened, because I think it's, it is a little bit interesting, the story because, uh, you know, you were, and again, thinking, I don't think it's unique into to what happened to you, uh, because I think that's been very common recently. Most physicians are familiar with practices being bought out, or at least mm-hmm. agreements happening, especially during COVID. So I think that sort of played into this a little bit. So why don't you talk a little bit about what happened, what you tried to do to, to fix this, or remedy the situation, and obviously yeah. it didn't work out, and that's kind of where you are, you know, now. Sure. Yeah. So when, when, um, the pandemic hit, we, it was, no one really kind of knew what to do. And so we were trying to figure out, we would meet with our chairman. We would say, okay, how are we going to run this? How are we going to keep ourselves safe? How are we going to keep patients safe? What is the best way of of doing this? So we decided to do a week on a week off. So we had five trauma surgeons and we would, you know, if you were the fifth one, you got two weeks off. And and so it was a really kind of nice lifestyle where we did, I spent a lot of time with my family, um, we would run a, a busy trauma service. We would have two people on it per week, and then we would get a one, one week on one week off. And, you know, this was a, a feasible system for a while, but then it, it became kind of like where, you know, the, the hospital system decided they wanted to, to, and they, they were going to be, they didn't know what t- type of financial hit would they were going to have. And so they, they proposed a, uh, a contract to us that said, Hey, we're going to decrease your, your salary by 5%, which I thought it was very reasonable and, um, and worth it. Um, and then, but in, with that, we, you know, there were a lot of earmarks in that as well. Like, Hey, we want you to sign a non-compete, which we didn't have when we first came over. The reason I was enticed to come over to the big hospital system was because it was their philosophy was we want to make this place so great that we don't want people to leave. So we didn't really, we didn't buy into the non-compete. They didn't want to make a non-compete. So anyone can buy into that. And so I, I said, okay, this, this is good. So they wanted to make a non-compete, but they also put in the contract that they can make us work as many hours as they want without a restriction. There was no time restriction on it. And they, they could adjust our compensation without notice, however they wanted. And those things to me, I had been on the wrong side of a contract before. And, and so I was, I, I'm not a lawyer, but I knew that that didn't sound good. And so I had my lawyer friends look at it and they said, this is kind of concerning. I, I would be very, you know, I would be careful about signing this. And I tried to talk to several different people in the administration and they said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to change it. We, we have no interest in changing it, which was their prerogative. And so, um, you know, I didn't sign it. And then I had a lot of conversations with uh, a few of the the administrators and they said, well, you know, how we need one of you to stay, a partner left with me. And so they're like, well, we need one of you to stay. We kind of developed the program and we were doing a lot of the the complex stuff. So they they said, well, we need one of you to stay. And I said, and they would ask, how, how can we, how can we do that? And I said, well, change, change some wording in the contract. 
They said, well, we're pretty sure they're not going to do that. And I said, well, that's, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to sign it again because <laughs> I didn't not sign it by accident. I didn't want to get caught up in, in what I didn't realize when I, when I started practice is you feel like everyone's good and everyone is, is there for you. What I realized when I sign contracts is those are binding documents and, and you can get yourself into trouble pretty easily if you don't, if you don't know what you're signing. Yeah. Well, and this is the bias I hold as an anesthesiologist. I work with all sorts of different surgical specialties. I do not generally think of orthopedic surgeons as deep thinkers. <laughs> it's, and, <laughs> right. And I, um, it's not fair I, because it, generally orthopedic surgeons are actually pretty smart. And cause there's a lot of anatomy you have to know. There's a lot of, you know, all the different surgery. I mean, honestly, I'm like, I, I don't remember even how to position lots of these surgery. I have to ask people because I don't pay enough attention and re- recall right. things. And so, um, but like when it comes to uh, conversations in the OR with orthopedic, orthopedic surgeons, it, there's not a lot of deep philosophical discussion. Now, to be granted, there's not a lot of deep philosophical discussion when you're doing laparoscopic cholecystectomies. <laughs> but the, the whole atmosphere is an athletic uh, sort of an athletic sort of you know jocks, right? And it it feels yep. a little bit more like a locker room in orthopedic surgery, especially in trauma, right? Definitely yes. more so. You know, it's like high energy and people are there's always hammers and saws and all kinds are going. And so yep. it, it never feels like it lends itself to people who are, you know, introspective. And so I, w- I, di- I would say I did not know you really well. I, and I didn't work at the big hospital very often with you. And so right. I, I'm a handful of times until we had a conversation with him. I'm like, oh, this guy is actually, there's like more, t- there's more depth here than I had anticipated. Right. <laughs> and that's, that is totally unfair on my part. This is, you know, the general sort of uh, look at surgeons. But, uh, and I think that's what, when you start telling me about what sort of how you pivot now, it makes much more sense to me than it did than had I just heard the story out of the blue because I would never have expected it. Because the joke, of course, is like you know orthopedic surgeon, you know there's a fracture, I need to fix it, and the joke is of course the patient's already dead or something like that. But you're, right. you're so right. intent to fix them, fix them, you got to fix that fracture. You don't even know who it belongs to. Just you, it's a broken bone. Uh, so I guess you you mentioned in that you've now in a different place and you have different and your know, time requirements are different and you're just thinking about thinking about orthopedics and medicine differently than you were before. Explain yeah, it, that transformation before you kind of go into specifics, I guess, of what, what you're doing now or how you're looking sure. at coaching medicine. Yeah. So when I got out of fellowship, I actually, when I started practice with, with my former resident, we decided, you know, we, we looked at each other and, and it didn't make sense to us that the, the more we learned and the, the more advanced we got with science, the fatter and sicker our population became. And, and there's a there's a paradox, no pun intended, but there's a paradox between the um, the knowledge that we have and kind of the tra- trajectory of where our population is going. And so we the knowledge health paradox is is what I call it. And and there are about ninety percent of people that have some type of metabolic disease, and that plays into a lot of the surgical stuff that we do. You, they have we call it poor protoplasm, but there's you know we can't measure protoplasm. But we, when you're, you're fixing somebody with a BMI of sixty, they don't heal well. They don't heal their their bones well, so they don't heal their skin well. They if they have renal disease, they clearly don't heal their skin, and so you see these you see this pattern recognition, and then you realize this, there's something wrong here. And so I, I got really interested in nutrition because I believe nutrition is the foundation of health. What we've done in medicine is that we've, we've avoided, we don't really focus on health. We focus on disease and that's how we're trained. And so we decided that we needed to start a community and we wanted to buy this land and we wanted to start 
a, a community that was based on health and the foundation was going to be food and organic food and not not contaminated food not processed food that kind of fell apart and it, and it went you know you know and so he my partner left and then i moved over to grand rapids and started trauma and then when COVID hit and all this stuff was happening i was giving different talks and and sp spoke specifically about how we needed to focus more on food as the foundation of our of our health and um it struck a chord with with uh, one of the people in the audience and now we're not we won't get into it much but we're starting to talk about um how this is going to come to fruition of how we can we can focus on health rather than disease and we can look at vitality as a measurement of health rather than just these lab tests that we get that show that you're elevated so you have high cholesterol or you have this and you need to go on a statin well there's ultimately a reason why that cholesterol is high it's it, and you know i thought about when we were discussing doing this podcast i was thinking a lot about this that there's whether you're a intelligent design you, you believe in intelligent design or evolution we know that the the body has extreme homeostatic mechanisms that are, are at play and so it always wants to find a homeostatic stable base well when you when you disrupt it it's not that the body is not supposed to do that and we need to bludgeon that thing down for instance if you have high cholesterol we don't need to bludgeon it down with a statin we need to say okay, why is this happening? What's happening with the liver? How are we going to address that? And, and if we bludgeon it down with a specific drug, what side effects does that, does that drug have? So for instance, the statins are interesting because it does lower your LDL cholesterol, but then it also in, affects your ability to make coenzyme Q, which, which is ultimately a, a protein that's used in the transmembrane in the mitochondria it's for energy ATP production. So those things to me were very interesting. And, and when we get into the, the nuance of actually what we're doing, we realize, I've realized that we're, I feel like we're missing a lot because we've almost missed the nuance of medicine. We've oversimplified things to, to explain it to people and then just give them drugs to, to correct a lab result rather than fix their health. Yeah. Well, and I think you see that a lot when, you know, I mean, when I'm preoperative uh, questioning a patient and I'm, we say, oh, you're a healthy person because you don't have any diseases, right? Or at least diagnoses and uh, you're not in medications or something. But there's definitely like, you know, there's that gestalt you get of a patient. This is a healthy person. This is not a healthy person. And, uh, and I think, you know, you can just see it, their skin, maybe uh, some there it, it's subtle, right? Like they're, mm -hmm. they're people you see and they just look fragile or they look like they just look sickly, even though they may mm -hmm. not be relatively healthy uh, or not have a lot on paper where they look really bad, but, but you know, they, but they are right. And you just kind of like functionally, this person is not a healthy person. And so I, yeah. I, I do, I do understand what you're coming through. It is that that affects all sorts of things, but it also, we sort of skip over those, those more obvious sort of like observations, right? To just leap to, well, the labs are okay, so I guess you're all right. Right. It, you know, and then I got into listening to a lot of these podcasts from functional medicine docs. And the way that we figure out these lab tests is we get the average, we get just the average value, and then two and two standard deviations above and below the mean. Well, so now we're comparing ourselves to sick people. 
<laughs> because because we're we're ninety percent ninety percent of people have metabolic disease. So now we're comparing ourselves to sick people and say, okay, well, you're not as sick as this sick person, you know, as the average person. And so, but how do we how do we know what optimal is? We don't really have a it's it's accurate, but it's not precise. And and it's going to be different for every single person. So when you when you look at somebody, you know, your your lab value should always fall within a normal range. But, you know, and it really depends on what you're looking at. Like you, there are things that are highly regulated, like sodium, potassium, magnesium, all that stuff is highly regulated. But then there are some that are less regulated, like in the, some of the things that are not, I shouldn't say less regulated. They're probably more, they're more likely um, or they're, they can be more aberrant and, and your body has, has learned to deal with it better, like glucose and right. your LDL cholesterol. And so we, we deal with it in a way, but in, you can look at somebody and say, you know, if I look at you, I have no idea what your LDL cholesterol is, but you know what I mean? But, you know, but you, you, those are the things that we look at is that, okay, well you have, you have these lab results, but what do they mean? And how did we get here? You know, I've actually had an issue with, with a little bit of elevated um, blood glucose level. So my, I wear a CGM most of the day. So a continuous glucose monitor to, to watch my glucose. I'm not diabetic, but I think it's interesting because you listen to different podcasts. I, you know, we talked about Peter Atia and Peter Atia has his own podcast. He's a physician that wears a CGM. And so my, I would typically run in the, the 80s, low 80s for my fasting blood glucose. And then one day it jumped up to about 95. So to me, that was a symptom. And so I, I went to um, the guy that treats me for functional medicine and I said, here's what's going on. He put me on some nutritional supplements and you know, a week later it was back down to the normal range. So those things are, for me, are optimal. When I'm, I'm not looking at preventing disease, I'm saying, okay, there's something going on with my, my physiology that I need to address right here, whether it be a toxin that I can't clear or it's a nutrient that I'm missing that to me is, is a symptom. My blood glucose that normal people wouldn't, tra wouldn't track on a daily basis was still in the normal range, but it was high for me. And that was, that would, to me was that's that, that to me is aberrant physiology that needs to be addressed. And so then how does this affect your practice? Right. I mean, again, going back to simply, well, you're orthopedic surgeon, you have bones and you know, I guess people yeah. have calcium levels. The osteoporosis is certainly an obvious thing. And, and you mentioned the healing aspect, but how do you incorporate functional medicine and into your practice that, that changes how you operate and work and sort of treat people compared to say five, 10 years ago? Yeah. So I, when I see a patient, it kind of, it's opened up my eyes to a broader spectrum of what joint pain could possibly be. So for instance, I had a lady that came in, I did her, her total knee three months ago and she had two months of she really liked it. And then a month in, she said, I really had this achy pain in my, in my knee. And there was not structurally, it was, it was, it was sound. It looked good. The x-rays looked good. So that didn't look like there was any loosening. So then I, I took her through some testing. I, I've learned some different things called conflict, uh, contact reflex analysis, where you can kind of go through and see if this is a mechanical problem. Is it somatic? Is it, is it uh, biochemical? And so she was testing for a somatic reaction. And so I said, how have your bowel movements been recently? You know, and she I kind of cut her off guard. She's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, have you had any changes within the last month with your, with your bowels when you had some knee pain? She goes, 
I have, I've, you know, she's like, they've been horrible. I've, I've alternated between diarrhea and constipation. And when we, when I learned in medical school, since I'm a, an osteopath, we learned the Chapman reflexes. And so if you take the, the colon and you flop it down on the, the front of the legs, the knee is right at the, the genuflexure, right at the, right when the transverse colon comes to the descending colon. And so that's kind of what she was testing as. And I said, I think this is coming from your bowel. So I, I gave her something to treat her bowels, gave her a probiotic, prebiotic, and I gave her something to kind of smooth out her, her um, intestines and she got better. And so those things to me, it's opened up my eyes completely to a different realm of possibility of what joint pain comes from. I can't tell you how many times I have people come in with atraumatic right shoulder pain. I say, this is coming from your liver gallbladder. You know, I treat the liver gallbladder. And so those things to me are, are I think, um, unique to an orthopedic practice because we get so hyper-focused on one thing and we don't realize that embryologically, that's where your liver gallbladder started and then it descended down. And so, you know, when you get hit in, in the testicles, it hurts in your stomach because that's where they started embryologically, then they descended down. So those visceral reactions are very important when you're looking at a patient and saying, okay, this is, you have joint pain, you had, you did nothing wrong. You, it just came out of the blue and you have no joint de degeneration whatsoever. It has to be for something else. And I've seen a lot of people in my clinic that come in and, and they get referred in for arthritis. So we treat them for arthritis and they've been to three different orthopedic surgeons and we've hammered it arthritis. So injections with corticosteroids, injections with visco supplementation, and they get, they get no better. And so when they come to me and I start talking to them about their gut, they're like, you're kind of crazy. And I be, and that's fine. But, you know, if, and then I'll look at him, I said, well, we've treated you for arthritis a lot. And have you gotten any better? And they'll say, well, no, not really. I said, so we're missing something. It's not, it's not that we're not doing it hard enough. It's that we're doing the wrong thing. Interesting. And then, and then how does that change your, from an operative standpoint, do you, op do you feel like you operate less? Cause you're, you're treating things more non-operatively because of you're looking at other things like treating, I mean, the classic thing is, again, broken bone, you got to fix it, or there's a joint yeah. pain, you got to replace it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think from, for me, um, I am always like last resort for elective surgery. I, I kind of go kick the can down the road as long as I possibly can until the, the patient has said, okay, this is enough. Let's, let's do this. Trauma is different. It's a little bit more cut and dry. If somebody comes in with an unstable joint, broken bone that gets fixed. Um, so do I, it's hard to, to, to I, I can't really answer that question while well, I've been at the new job for two years. And so I, I'm kind of slow at kind of getting into my elective practice. So um, am I slower than some of the other guys around town? It, absolutely. Um, but that could be a product of me moving to a new practice and establishing myself as an, as an elective orthopedic surgeon, um, plus or minus, you know, the, the functional medicine stuff as well. I always find it interesting too, because you hear this, you hear the term sick care versus, you know, healthcare, whatever, and that we have generally a sick care system. Uh, but the problem I always have with that concept, I mean, I agree that obviously we treat people kind of problems. We don't, mm -hmm. we don't usually treat, especially you and I specialists, we're not treating people who are, you know, to maintain their health. But in some ways, you know, you don't go to your doctor to get health advice and to get treated for health. And, you know, uh, I mean, is that a proper role for, a physician in some ways, because, you know, your, your contact is limited. Uh, yes. If you have a direct primary care doc, you have more time and maybe, you know, you get longer visits, but is it reasonable to expect someone to have 15, 20 minutes and totally radically change someone's life that they, you know, 
change your diet and exercise and all this stuff? Or is that something that, you know, you can recommend it, but it's probably not the right role for a physician in some way. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, it, it, no, I totally agree with you. And it, you know, a lot of people come to you be, with problems. They don't come to you because they they have a blood glucose that went from 80 to 95, <laughs> right. you know, it, because they would have no idea. So um, it's a difficult question to, to answer, I guess, because people come to us with problems, but we have to, we have to be armed appropriately to take care of those problems. And I think that, you know, we've gotten to this point in, in our sick care system that we've siloed ourselves so much. Like for instance, I mean, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, but I do trauma and, and I only fix fractures. So I don't do ACL reconstructions. I don't even do arthroscopies. And so we've, we've hyper-focused on so many different things. And what that's done is it's kind of pigeonholed us into this. We, our body is the sum of all of its parts, which when you put it all together, it's, you realize that all of this is working together. And so you go to a neurologist for your nerve, your, you know, send anything with your nerves, brain, whatever. You go to a cardiologist for your heart. You go to an orthopedic surgeon for your, your bones. Those, those, when you silo those things out, you, you, don't, you don't make a system that, is, that works well because you, the, you have to understand how the body works and how, how you do have viscerosomatic somatic issues. And there are things that are coming from other places. The immune system is, is a, you know, a fantastic thing because it, it's 70 to 80% of your immune system is in your gut. And so anytime that you have rheumatoid arthritis or you have a hyperimmune system, you have to look specifically at the gut because that's where most of your immune system is, is focused, is it your gut. And so rheumatoid arthritis is a, is a perfect example because that is a trigger from, from the gut that attacks your joints. And so, you know, you look at people with gluten sensitivity or they, you have milk sensitivities and stuff like that. These are systemic problems. And, and I'm dealing with a guy that's 38 years old right now that was, um, he was involved with burn pits and he has, um, he has myocarditis and, and some issue with his ankle joint that I had to wash out was his, his labs were negative in terms of, I didn't find any bacteria in his, in his ankle. He's been treated with antibiotics. So there are culture negative, um, you know, you do get culture negative, uh, positive lab or, you know, you, you will have an infection, but it's culture negative. So, you know, I look at it and I said, has anyone talked to you about diet or your gut or anything else like that? Because he's got some severe problems. He's type two diabetic. He's overweight. He's a veteran. Part of his care is through the veteran, you know, veteran affairs. Part of his is, is from the civilian care system. There's just no good way to, to talk. And he doesn't really have anyone that will talk with him. He does have a rheumatologist who does quite a good job for him. But I feel like no one's addressed his issue. Like, is this coming from the burn pits that you were exposed to that you can't conjugate stuff in your liver and you can't expose of it? Or is this something that, you know, you're getting from your diet or a lack of nutrients or something like that? Or is it both? You know, I, I just read a really interesting book. It's called Total Recovery by a guy named Gary Kaplan. He's a functional medicine doc in Virginia. He has triple board certified in uh, family medicine, pain management, and acupuncture. And he was looking specifically at this, at this kid that had, um, he was a downhill skiing. He tore his ACL. He was 13 years old, had an ACL reconstruction, um, did fine postoperatively, but then he, he developed this really bad complex regional pain syndrome and it crippled him for about five years until he found Dr. Kaplan. And what he did, he said, he, he was looking specifically at, you know, stealth pathogens, Lyme disease, 
all these other things that that could possibly be. And he he read this article by um, this guy that decided you know that that looked at mold toxins and and inability to conjugate these mold toxins in the liver that were that were basically depositing in his brain and, and hyperstimulating his nervous system and activating his the glial cells within the, within the brain, causing neuroinflammation. And so what this guy recognizes that. If you're if you're HLA HLADR positive homozygous for for you know then you don't conjugate these molds and then you can't get rid of them. So they they ran this test on this kid who had who was positive. He was homozygous positive for HLADR, and so he couldn't conjugate the toxins. He had a bunch of mold toxins accumulating in his brain. They detoxed him from that, and his complex regional pain syndrome went away. And so those things to me are like, we're, we're clearly missing a part of how complex the body actually is by hyper-focusing on one part that we're good at. Yeah. It seems like in some ways, you know, it probably would be helpful for us to have some, I guess, experience and recognition of functional medicine, right? No matter what your specialty is, you have to have specially specific knowledge, right? I wouldn't want an orthopedic surgeon that's you know, sort of familiar with joints, right? Right. I want someone who knows exactly what the, you know, how to read the film, how they want the correction to be and what to do in case of certain fractures or whatever. Uh, But probably to your point, it's probably important to have some overall knowledge of the, of the basic function of the, the, the body and recognition that there may be other manifestations and things that are causing the problems you have. And to your story about the mold, that's interesting because I, I think there are a lot of things that we attribute to people just being crazy. And this is the thing we talk about, you know, right. Or that mm-hmm. it's, a uh, the, the, uh, the polite way of putting it is super tentorial, right? Like it's all in their head, right. the pain system. And, and I think there's a, there are psychological components to pain and all sorts of different things. No question, right. yes. but there may be physical or physiological, you know, explanations for these things too, right. Or, or pathological explanations that are causing these, these right. problems as well, which, you know, maybe on top of anxiety and other things too, but, but, those are probably things that are worth recognizing and, and at least entertaining the, the fact that they can exist. I, yeah, I agree. And, you know, I, I, I do end up taking a lot of the hardware out that I put in probably more than a lot of orthopedic surgeons do because not because I suggest it to my patients, but because they're asking me for it. And so when I, when we go through this conversation, I always tell them it's, it's one of three things that are bothering you. It's either the fracture. It's not the fracture anymore because that's healed but it's either the trauma that you went through or the, the placement of the hardware, the hardware that's in. Um, and what I've seen is that people have this, this pain that doesn't make sense. It doesn't follow a derma, dermatomal pattern. It doesn't have, you know, cutaneous, but they're usually very hypersensitive and they just have this weird kind of odd pain that doesn't follow anything. It's like my whole hand hurts and I just did their distal radius. So when I get them the metal out, whether it is, you know, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it could be completely placebo, but in their brain, they say, this is better. And they come into me and say, this is better. And, and there have been a couple of reports on it that 97% of people that have their hardware out do have improvement in their symptoms. I had a lady that came into me on uh, last Monday and she said, I've, I fixed her when I was at the big hospital system, I fixed her a couple of years ago. And she came in, she's like, I know this is going to sound weird, but I only have pain in my wrist where I fixed her wrist and my knee where I fixed her knee and only during thunderstorms. That's the only time that I have. And we know that the, the body has an electrical charge to it. We, we, we know that because static electricity, we, we shock people all the time. Remember those, um, those balls that when you're growing up that, that 
that ball that had all the electricity coming out of it. Is it Vandegraaff ball or something? I can't remember. Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think something like that. I was a little bit too young. I mean, I remember them. I just don't remember what it was called. I was too young to remember what it was called. But you touch it and that electrical would go, it would would localize right to wherever you're touching it. So we, we understand that the body can hold an electrical charge. And so I was, so she wears, she, she wears a grounding wrist uh, bracelet to, to bed. So she puts, she puts a bracelet on and she hooks it into the grounding part of her outlet to, to take out negative ions from her body. There's another, there's something I gave her because I said, well, there's, there might be something because if it's a thunderstorm, it's got to be from a charged particle. That's, that would be my explanation for it, if this is truly going on. And so, or it's a barometric pressure or something like that. But so, but I, so I treated her with something called GI adsorb, which has zeolite in it, which is a, it's a, it's like a, a negatively charged ion that will help pull some positively charged ion particles out. And I'm going to see her in a month and see if that did anything for her. It may not, but it's worth a shot. And I'm, li- I'm listening to her. And I think normally I would say, oh, you're crazy. It's only during, <laughs> during thunderstorms. It's made me think a little bit deeper and say, maybe you're not crazy. And maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. Well, I see with my family that I've got a bunch of migraineurs in my family and a storm rolls in and there's a, if there's a big barometric, barometric pressure change, they get migraines and it's a trigger and mm-hmm. you know, it's too, it's too frequent and too common to, uh, because it was like, why do I get a migraine today? And then they'll realize there was the storm hits like an hour later. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, so it's, it is real. Like there are things that happen and, you always heard the stories about the guy with the trick knee or, you know, that he could tell it was going to rain because his, his knee started acting up or something with his gout. But mm-hmm. I, I think there's, there are a lot of mysteries of the body that we certainly don't understand. Um, I think you can get, I think you can get carried away and, you know, buy some snake oil and, and get, well, for get sure. fooled too. Yes. But there's probably, there are probably subtle things like on the edges, right? Like to your point of homeostasis, there's probably a, the body's trying to maintain something that we don't even measure or we don't, not even aware of it possibly. And, everybody's body is different too. Right. I think yeah. it's funny how we, I, I'm always, I would tell people, you know, we're doing something and maybe the surgery things weren't where they expected or they're different. And people are always, or when I'm doing a nerve block, like, why, like, why are we not the same? Like, well, no one, you never walk by the street and up and you're not surprised when no one looks like you, but yet you're, you're right. shocked that inside you're, you're totally, you're different in some ways. Right. I mean, things are generally right. in the same place. And so that explains the variability. And so it's this totally reasonable to think that, well, you know, if some people are more sensitive to atmospheric pressure, some people more to pollen or whatever, you know, a million things yeah. that you can be more or less sensitive yeah. to that makes you different, which is yeah. the fun of medicine, <laughs> sometimes aggravating because, you know, of course it's not, it's not a, we're not dealing with things off of a production line, like a 747 where everything parts exactly the same in the same place. Right. And that makes the standard work really difficult. You know, we, you have this idea of the standard work, and, and that is really good in a production line. But when you're dealing with patients, it's it, it, a lot of people fit into the bell curve. So a lot of people will will uh, will respond to the type of treatment that we give um, to different variability, but they'll fall within the parameters that we're looking for. And so, you know, it, it, standard work does work for the majority of people, but doesn't work for everyone. And so, you know, to, to your point, yes, you have to be very careful with the snake oil stuff and, and you can, you can go really far in that direction and, and go deep in a rabbit hole and stuff like that, which I don't think is useful for treating patients. But I do think that it's opened my eyes to say, okay, I may not have the answer and you may not be crazy, but I need to look into this a little bit further. And if you come into me and you have this 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 question and i think it's 
bogus. Well, I at least should look into it and see what if if it is or not. It's it's humbled me a lot and to say, okay, I don't know everything and I don't have all the answers for every single patient that comes into into me. And I, I need to start looking at things outside. If we're treating arthritis and they're getting they're not getting better, but they're clearly having symptoms, what else could be the cause? And that's that's where you know, going back, I loved biochemistry going through school. I loved the biochemical reactions. I, 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 and understanding that stuff is very fascinating to me. And, but the body does, we know, I mean, we know a lot about biochemistry, but there's a lot of stuff that we still don't know. And you look in hundred years from now, they'll look back and say, I cannot believe that they were doing what they were doing a hundred years ago. And that, that just, you need to realize that like, we're not at the pinnacle of where we're going to go. And we will never be there. You know, there's always stuff that we're going to learn and, and get better at. Yeah. It, there's no question that you're going to, that there, the amount of reactions that we're familiar with and the substances that are biochemical react, I mean, it's piddly compared to what it actually is going on in the body. And, and especially there's a lot of things that we just don't measure or don't even know how to measure. Uh, right. I yeah. Mean, yeah. And right. And the, the measurements that we do get are extracellular. What we care about is intracellular. And so we're we're getting kind of the byproduct of what we actually care about. So we can't directly measure a lot of stuff that's intracellular and we can't look at it directly unless we lyse the cell, which you can do in a lab, but we're certainly not gonna do it on people and on patients. But you know, if we're looking at their the extracellular, you know, basically junk and say, this is the byproduct of what we're looking at. Well, we're not seeing the process. We're just seeing the, the, the result of the process but there are many steps within that process and we, ad we address one of them, which, and it may, that may not even be the problem, you know? And so, but it, it gives us the desired metric that we're looking for, which isn't always the right answer. And then finally, you know, when you look at, you mentioned standard work and I think to someone who's not in medicine, they may hear that and not really, if they're not in corporate, you know, somewhere in corporate, right. They don't, may not know what yeah. that means. So it's just like an algorithmic way of, of, structuring your day and how you treat people. So someone comes in with a fever, you know, there are five steps or let me, that's maybe the two general, but like if they had an ear, ear pain, you look in, you look in the ear, do they have ear infection? Is it viral? Is it bacterial? And then you prescribe antibiotics or you don't or whatever. And so you kind of try and treat and have a standard way of approaching every problem. And it's algorithmic medicine. I don't know exactly sure how you, people describe it. You're, what you're talking about is clearly not right. There's no way that you can that you, that you can do it that way. What is your feeling about standard work or algorithmic medicine? Is that, is that okay sometimes? Is it some just certain times that you think, well, this is when we need to, to do it? Or do you think in general we need to kind of step back from that and to look to, I guess, practice medicine a little differently? So it, it depends on what the patient is looking for. So I think that standard work, if, you're, if your standard work is good for patients, with the, the volume of patients that we have, it's necessary to have standard work. If, but we have to understand that people are, are different. So I, you know, I, I had a guy come into my clinic and he had hip pain and he came to me for, you know, he wasn't really sold on the idea of, you know, having a total joint, but he had no motion in his hip. And I said, what do you enjoy doing? What, what is, what makes you live? Why are you here on earth? And what, what makes you enjoy life? He's like, I have eight grandkids and I can't play with them. I said, I want to give you that back. I want to be, and not, not me specific, you know, but yeah, right. I want to be, I want to provide you with something that's going to give you that enjoyment 
enjoyment in your life back because that's important to me that you're not able to do something that makes you enjoy life. If you're not enjoying life, there's no reason for you to be here. And I think that that I think the the depressed mood that you're going to get because you're you can't do things to enjoy life are going to negatively impact your health. And and I think it's going to do it in a way that it's going to decrease your vitality and you're going to you're there are things that you're just going to avoid and you're going to be more introverted and not do the things that that really make you thrive and, and live. And so, you know, by the time I got done with my conversation, his wife was like, you're going to make me cry because <laughs> to, to me, that's that is living. I, why? Why are we put on here on Earth if we're not going to be able to to do the things that we actually enjoy to do? And that's what I want to help people with is I wanted I wanted. I want to pr- provide them with some vitality that will allow them to enjoy the life that they're, that they're here to live. And I think that we've gotten hyper-focused on these, on, um, you know, avoiding disease rather than providing health for people. And I, and I think that we, you know, I always talk about health is not the, just the absence of disease because, you know, you look at, you know, the recommended daily allowance of, of vitamin C that they give us is actually just to avoid scurvy. It's not to, it's not to optimize our health. It's just to avoid scurvy. So those specific things, like to me, you can't measure vitality. It's like, you know, how much, what value do you put on loving your kids? There's no number to that. There's no number to life either. But what I can do is I can say, what things do you really enjoy doing that you can't do right now? And once I achieve those goals, or if we have a conversation and say, well, I think you can meaningfully achieve this with, with what I, with the surgery that I'm providing you, getting those expectations in their head and realizing that their life is going to improve, I think is really kind of what we need to to do. And that's, that was, is my focus going back to your question about standard work. I think with the volume of patients that we have, it's necessary. And I think it works for the majority of people, but then when you get outside of that and say, okay, now I'm, now I'm stabilized. How am I going to optimize my life and how am I going to actually improve my condition rather than just getting stuck in the system that, you know, just keep coming back. It's a revolving door. And, you know, we, we talked, I, I listened to your podcast before and you were talking about how hospitals are just basically a hotel for the sick, for sick people. And, and that's truly what it's become. And I, I feel like, you know, when you go to your, your physician to get, healthy. I, I don't know that we're trained to, to provide health information. I would have a lot of people come in and ask me about specific health related things. I'm like, I don't know anything about that. And so I had to read about it to, to figure it out. We're trained in disease and we do, and we do a really good job at keeping really sick people alive for a really long time. Um, so there's, I mean, we, we certainly have gotten really good at that, but I would like the focus to be how do we make you live life and how do we give you some, how do we give you some vitality left? How do we get you to, to your retirement? And now your body's breaking down. How can we prevent that from happening? Because most people, they, they, can, they work until they're 65 years old and then they can't do anything because orthopedically they're completely broken down, which is not the, this is not of interest to me to continue to, to just treat their symptoms and then just have them, you know, ultimately become frail and then end up passing away. And they never really accomplished anything that they wanted to because they were stuck in, you know, being sick all the time. This kind of 
gets me back to a little bit off topic in some ways, but I think the final discussion here is just about um, COVID, just real briefly. When you look at the mortality data for the United States, it's really pretty poor. I mean, I think, you know, when it look, when you look at how many Americans succumb to COVID, yes, there's controversy and counting numbers and people die with COVID, of COVID and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I understand that. But I don't think there's much question that the mortality rate in general from COVID was much higher in our population than other countries, even in a pediatric population, which was still very low, mm-hmm. but it was, it was significantly higher than like you look at countries in Europe that where they have pretty good numbers too that you think are reliable. Yeah. Do you think a lot of this is just because of, is this dietary issues? Cause we're just obesity in general, which is kind of like the marker for general metabolic uh, disorders. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's all metabolic disease. I mean, you, we, we have masked a lot of disease by medicate over medicating people. You know, you see the average 65 year old is on, I think five different medications. And so be, you're, if you have elevated blood pressure, it's not because your hydrochlorothiazide levels are low. You know, it's, it's because there's a metabolic process that's happening. And so if, if these go unaddressed, we're still, you know, it's, it's like asking my five-year-old to clean his room. I was, can you clean your room? And he stuffs everything under his bed so we can do that, but it's not cleaning his room. And so I think the reason that we struggled so badly with, with COVID is because we are a sick population of people that have no reserve whatsoever. So then we get hit with a virus and we, we have no reserve to fight that virus off. And then we end up, you know, in the hospital and, and severely having some respiratory issues and everything else that came along with it. Yeah. So I, mean, I, think- I don't think, I don't think it's only a nutritional deficiency. I think it's, it's chronic nutritional deficiency, chronic toxin overload. And I think, you know, when we, when you look at functional medicine, they talk about the exposome. So the exposome is basically everything that you're exposed to from your in- infancy till, till your death. And you, you get exposed to all kinds of metals, um, bacteria, viruses, molds, um, parasites, things we don't even know about that exist, you know. And so if your liver, gallbladder aren't functioning to get rid of it, 80% of the, the uh, toxic load gets gets um, detoxified in the liver, 20% in the kidney. And so if your kidneys are not functioning appropriately, if your liver is not functioning appropriately, these, this stuff is going to accumulate in your brain, in, in your in your body somewhere. And so I think that the exposome, and, and it's interesting because I read a book by David Sinclair, it's called Lifespan. And he's he is a researcher at Harvard that looks at longevity and and how and anti-aging and stuff like that. And and really his argument was, and he and Peter Diamandis, who's another physician, he, they argue that there's no real reason that we should age. If you look at it from, if we can avoid toxic exposure, the only reason that we age is because of the things that we're exposed to that, that affects our epigenetics, meaning that the, the genes that are expressed at a certain time, you're born with the same genetic code that you die with. And so there's the, the genes that you had that were turned on in your, as an infant, you still have with you. They're just not expressed because of the exposures that you've had. So methylation and, and all this other stuff that happens with the DNA, it turns these genes off and, and turns other genes on. So you acetylate genes and, and methylate genes and, and you turn these genes on. And as you age, as you're exposed to things and that methylation process is affected and the sirtuins, which are the, the proteins that, that are involved in this methylation, as those things change, your epigenetics change and then you age. This is, this is so aging, which even the anti-aging 
scientists have a hard time discussing like what aging actually is because there's real no definition to it. But as you get exposed to these things, you will age and, the, and you will look different. And it's it, you, the reason you look different is because you have different genes that are being turned on and, uh, and turned off. And ravaged by gravity too. Gravity. You, well, yeah, that too, that too. Yeah, that too. Yeah, which I guess see, is. You, and you see, you see some 65, 70 year olds with tight skin. I mean, you, it's not a lot, but I mean, so we, we have the capacity to do it. I mean, gravity is certainly a big stressor to our body, but we have capacity to, to do this, you know, and you look at like autistic or Asperger's children specifically, their brains function and they, they can remember things that we have. Our brain has that capacity. Every human has that capacity to, to do that. How do they access that? And that's the question is, is like, why, why can they access it? And what, what specifically is going on in there in that biochemical process for them to access all this information that a normal human being usually would suppress or, or just kind of think about it subconsciously and not have it consciously aware to them. Well, so those are interesting things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are interesting things to me that you're like, these disease processes are, are, are interesting to look at and, and learn from because like we have the capacity to do this. We just don't know how to tap into it or we don't know we don't know what the, the whole process really is and there are certainly some behavioral issues and, and other issues that are that are with autism and asperger's disease that need to be addressed but i mean you you can't deny that you know asperger's are are extremely impressive people in terms of what they know yeah and i think the, the thing it just points out that we just don't there's a lot we don't know and it's a lot yet to discover and you know there's more than what there's going to be more, so much more known that before, and we'll be gone long before we understand a lot of these processes. I'm almost for sure. For sure so, yeah. yeah. Well, Dr. Blake Miller, I uh, appreciate you coming on the, the paradox and I, I don't know, are you, I don't think you have much of a social media presence or do you, is there a place? I don't really know. I, stuff? Yeah. I, I had a blog for a while at integrated healthcare.blog. I haven't been, I haven't been blogging a lot, but I, I thought about doing that again. Um, and then, yeah, I have Facebook, but I use it for personal reasons and, and uh, Instagram, which is all personal stuff that I don't really don't have a social media presence in this realm yet, but I'm, I'm contemplating. Smart man that you're staying out of the cesspool. Well, it's, <laughs> it's nice to have a discussion with you and uh, we'll talk again. Would maybe some more developments come your way? Thanks Sounds so much. Good. Thanks, Eric. Yep. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Oh, 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 oh,